Good morning. I am Scott Fredrickson. I'm an elder apprentice here at North Shore Church. We're happy to have you guys here today. Um, it's good to be here, and uh, I want to, our service today, our sermon is going to be surrounding 1 Samuel 18, so we'll get right into that. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and when David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women who sang to one another as they celebrated as well. Saul had struck him down. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings from the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merib, I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul, for Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Methodite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Mishtel, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistine may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private, and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said 
Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus, and so did David speak. Then David said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, and that he may be avenged by the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David rose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But then Saul, then Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the command, commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. That ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for, being, for us being here today. Keep us from any spiritual attacks, Lord God. Open our hearts this morning to receive your words. Keep us from any distractions so that heart and mind, our hearts and minds may be filled with the Holy Spirit this morning. Lord God, please give us strength to stand for you rather than to yield to peer pressure or anything that the world dishes out. Whatever it is that we may be going through right now, Lord, please meet with us where we are, broken and sinful human beings. Lord, we know we can't do it on our own, and when we try, we fail. Use each of us today for your glory, that we may find rest for our souls in you. Finally, Father, give Duncan the, the words to speak to you. Let us not see him, but see you through him. God, that, thank you for your love and care this morning as, uh, as we pray, believing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as you heard, we continue to be looking at the life of King David, who lived and ruled about a thousand years before Jesus, just to give you some context. Chapter 18, we come to today, we need to review just a little bit. Chapter 16 and 17 were the author's way of introducing us to David. In chapter 16, we see God's anointing of this young man who was his choice to be his king over Israel after he'd rejected Saul, who was the kind of king that the people wanted. Next in chapter 17, in his battle with Goliath, we saw why it was that God chose David to be king over Saul. And that is because Saul's life was all about living for Saul, his reputation, his fame. But David's life was all about living for God, his name, his fame, his acclaim. That was David. David's life is often used as only a moral example for us. That's a bad way to read the Bible. There are lessons from David's life, but as we've repeatedly seen, the Bible is a book where all the authors make God the hero. And the Bible is written to reveal 
God to us so that we can know him. And as we look at the story that Scott read from chapter 18, God manifests a really important part of who he is by revealing the radically different ways that he relates to David from how he relates to Saul. Now Saul at this point is still reigning as king over Israel even though God had rejected him and had anointed David in favor. Now all the content of this chapter really fits under two headings, and so that's how we're going to be looking at it this morning. First, God's transparent favor that rests on David. And second, God's transparent disfavor that rests on Saul. So we're going to be hanging all of our ideas on those two hooks, if you will. First, four expressions of God's favor on David, and then three expressions of God's disfavor on Saul. But first of all, we need to see what is at the very heart of God's favor on David, because this is the most repeated line in this chapter. The author repeats this three times in the story, so we know that this is crucial to what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Verse 14, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Finally, verse 28, we read, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and then Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. Okay, this repeated phrase could sail like a banner over all of David's life and all of his reign as king, and that is, the Lord was with him. That's why it's repeated three times. Every story about David in the Old Testament, even those that record or reveal his failures, they reveal the unusual presence and power of God in his life. And that began back in chapter 16 when Samuel anoints him as king, and we're told, and the Holy Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, the Spirit came on Saul, too, but God took the Spirit away from Saul. But it rushed on David, and it was on him from that day forward. It doesn't say that about hardly anybody else in the Old Testament, so that's important. That reality, the presence of God in David's life, is the explanation for all of his amazing accomplishments on the battlefield as king, as a worshiper, and as the author of about half of the Psalms. This abiding presence of God with David is the root of God's favor on his life. So let's look at four ways that God's transparent favor, transparent favor rests on David. The first one is in the first four verses and reveals David's unique relationship with the king's son, Jonathan. We're going to see that this is about the favor of God, not Jonathan and David. Now remember the context. David has defeated Goliath, and Saul had evidently taken him to be part of his royal court. Because it says in verse 2, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. He'd been going back and forth from Jesse in the fields out shepherding to David, to Saul. Now he's staying there. Here we meet Saul's son, Jonathan. Now we'd seen him, if you're following in 1 Samuel, back in chapter 14, when he wins a miraculous victory over the Philistines. He and his armor bearer go up and take on a much larger group and annihilate them. When we compare Jonathan's relationship with David's and Saul's relationship with David's, which the author's asking us to do here by how he writes the story, it's important for us to remember something, and that is Jonathan had a hundred times more reason to be jealous of David than Saul did. Saul's the head honcho. He has no reason to be jealous of little David. He can do with David whatever he wants. Jonathan 
was presumed to be the heir to Saul's throne. He didn't know his father had been rejected as king at this point. And in the ancient monarchies, any giant slaying heroic warrior type like David, that would have been seen as a rival to Jonathan's throne. But instead of suspicion and jealousy, Jonathan's absolutely amazing response to David is an expression of God's supernatural favor on David. Beginning in verse 1, as soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This is one of the most powerful expressions of God's favor on a person anywhere in the Old Testament. This is the first recorded meeting between Jonathan and David, and instantly the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And in the Hebrew, what it literally says is Jonathan became one spirit with David. This is incredibly powerful. That instantaneous and supernatural bond between these two so that Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. This is not just good chemistry, okay? This is something a lot more than that. He loved him as his own soul. He's knit to his soul. He'd never met him before. He might have heard of him, never met him before, okay? This is not an exaggeration that he loved David as we loved his own soul. And he shows it right here, first of all, by making a covenant with David. Now, we don't know the specifics of the covenant, but we do know that a covenant is a legally binding relationship. It was mutually sacrificial with one another, and it happened at their first meeting. It's amazing. In verse 4, Jonathan takes off his robe, or we would say more accurately or precisely, he takes off his royal robe because he was a prince. So he had the robe of a prince. And he gave it to David in addition to his royal armor and his bow and his belt. This is astonishing because the scholars tell us that in giving David these things, Jonathan is committing to David that he would give everything to him, including and up to his right to the throne. This is amazing. He'd never met this man before. And he doesn't hold his throne, covet his throne. This man whose favor, God, his favor is resting on him, he gives him the broil robe. Now we know later on he explicitly makes this commitment to David. In chapter 23, he says, Do not fear, this is Jonathan talking to David, Do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Okay? But Jonathan appears to make that commitment to David in his heart right here in chapter 18 by giving him his robe and his armor. A second expression of God's favor on David is seen throughout this chapter, and that is in David's impressive, repeated military conquest. Verse 5, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. As you go through the life of David, one of the prominent themes that you see in the life of David is his amazing, supernatural military 
prowess. Now this particular assignment in verse 5 probably was more of a supportive role, maybe a military strategist, but as we'll see in a moment, he gave him success on the battlefield as well. He was successful off and on the battlefield as a military planner. In verse 13, this other assignment comes in militarily, and the author writes, so Saul removed him from his presence, David, and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings. Militarily, David had the Midas touch. If you were lining up to fight an army that was commanded by David, you're going to end up as a statistic. Because David didn't lose, okay? He is invincible militarily in what you read about him. There's a reason why God said, I'm not letting you build the temple because you're a man of blood. It's because he killed thousands of men. Okay? He was an amazing warrior. Later in verse 27, when David agrees to the terms of his bride price to marry Michael, his military success is on display again. Saul puts David in what one scholar calls a suicide mission of collecting 100 foreskins of the Philistines in the hope that he would be killed by the Philistines. Instead of them killing David, however, he brings back not 100, but 200 of these gruesome tokens and becomes Saul's son-in-law. You might be wondering, why is this here? <laughs> I mean, we don't talk about foreskins much, you know, and it doesn't come up in conversation much. But to collect foreskins, though it might sound strange to us, there was a good reason for this. First, just in general terms, it was very common in the ancient Near East that when you killed somebody, you dismembered him. Most of the time, you cut off his hand. It was a sign of your victory. As in David's case, he took off Goliath's head. So dismemberment in and of itself was not unusual. But we tend to think that the Israelites were the only group that was circumcised. Not true. Most of the pagans in the ancient Near East were circumcised. One group that was notably not circumcised were the Philistines. So when he tells him to bring back the foreskins, that's Saul's way of assuring that David was killing Philistine warriors and not other men. Okay? This is, when the Bible has these strange details in it, don't just skip over. It's there for a reason. And it's there to say David, David is being held accountable by Saul. A final example of this military prowess is in verse 30. The author writes, Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was greatly esteemed or highly esteemed. So again, David is an invincible military commander. Why? Because God was with him. If you were fighting David, you were fighting God. Now some might wonder, but I don't see any of these verses specifically crediting his military victory to God's favor on him. And the reason is because in chapter 17, David himself has already connected those dots. David tells Goliath in chapter 17, verse 45, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Okay, David knew that it was God using him as his instrument to kill Goliath because Goliath had defied God and his army. In verse 46, he tells Goliath, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And in verse 47, he says, the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. So even if nobody else knew the truth behind David's amazing military victories, David knew 
David knew he was a warrior of God, and God was doing what he did through David, through his divine favor on him. A third expression of God's favor on David is his immense popularity with the people of Israel. We read this in verse 5. It says, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And they were coming home. When David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens thousands. The people loved David from day one. This was a man who as a teenager had killed the giant. I mean, on a human level, everybody loves an underdog, right? Later in verse 16, the author says something interesting. It says, but all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. What's unusual about that sentence? What's unusual is it says all Israel and Judah. The kingdom isn't divided now. This is one Israel, and yet it says Israel and Judah. Why? Again, ask these questions. Why does it say Israel and Judah? And the reason is because Saul was from Israel. Benjamin, that's Israel, the northern kingdoms. David was from Judah, the southern kingdoms. This is the author's way of saying, even though it's one country together, this is the author's way of saying, even those people who should have been favorably disposed towards Saul, they love David too. Even his, his homies, of course, loved him, but even people who frankly didn't or shouldn't have loved him all that much, they loved him too. In other words, the love that the people had for David was universal, okay? Transparent favor of God. A huge emphasis here by the author. A fourth and a final expression of God's expression of favor on David is revealed through another member of Saul's family, and that is David's favor with the king's daughter, Michael. I'm going to say Michael. It's really Michal but I don't want to spit anything at you. And it's Merab is really Merab, but I'm going to just say Merab, okay? So we're just cheating a little bit here. We know from the story that Saul had deceitfully reneged on his promise to take David, his firstborn daughter, Merab, okay? But that doesn't stop God from making David Saul's son-in-law anyway and greatly elevating his status in Israel. If you were marrying into the first family, your status went from great warrior to the top of the charts. They had the most influence. They had the most favored lives of everybody in any country was the family of the king. And so Saul says about Merab, ah, you're not going to get him. And God says, that's okay. You got another daughter. I'll give you Michael. That's the point. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul and the thing pleased him. So again, he's elevated in society. And it's no coincidence that two of Saul's very own children so deeply loved David. Why does the author point that out? In verse 28, we read, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. The point of two of Saul's children being mentioned as loving David so deeply is this. Even though Saul was doing all that he could to diminish and even kill David, God's favor is so strongly on David that Saul wasn't even able to prevent members of his own family from going bonkers over this guy. That's the point, right? That's because in Saul's opposition to David, he wasn't fighting David. He was fighting God. God, and we all know nobody has arms that long, okay? 
God had chosen to give David an amazing level of favor that included Michael, that included Jonathan, and Saul could do nothing to stop it. And that leads us to the second major section, which is God's disfavor that rested on Saul. In the Bible, there are these people like David and Joseph and Daniel who are much favored by God, and they accomplish far, far more than you would have expected of a person like that. But other biblical characters are just snake bit, and they end up being huge disappointments. These are people like Esau and Haman and Reuben, people like that. God's disfavor is on them. And you can see it in two ways in the Old Testament. Number one, in circumstances that are continually lining up to frustrate what they want. That's disfavor. But another element of the disfavor of God is on deep character flaws in a person that set that person up for repeated failure. Okay, That's disfavor. Saul experienced both of those from the Lord. So let's look at three expressions of God's disfavor that rested on Saul. And first is Saul's jealousy and fear of David. Okay? The first example of this is when Saul and David are returning from a successful military campaign, and the women sing. They're coming out of every significant city on the way. They're singing in celebration. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Verse 8 says, Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Now, you may be tempted to sympathize with Saul because of this dig here, or perceived dig. After all, Saul was the king. He was a seasoned military leader, and although David had gone up like a rocket, for all anybody knew, he could have gone and crashed and burned. They didn't know that. So why is he credited with more than Saul? The scholars help us to know how really petty, however, Saul is being here. Bruce Waltke, who's a great Old Testament scholar, wrote the greatest Old Testament theology book, writes this, The laws of Hebrew poetry require that the greater Saul be named first, and the lesser David second, and that the smaller number be mentioned before the higher. You see what I'm saying? What that means is this little ditty that these women sang from every village as they came out, they all sang the same ditty, okay? They didn't conspire together, not having known one another, and said, by the way, let's give David more credit than Saul. That's not what happened here. This little ditty they sang, they sang because of the rules of Hebrew poetry, really recognized Saul as the greater warrior because he's listed first. And the rules of the poetry forced them to list the smaller number first, which paired it with Saul. The point is simply this, that everyone in that culture would have known that these ladies were not intending to slight Saul compared to David. They were simply recognizing that although King Saul was greater than David, both were accomplished warriors. That's what these people were saying. But Saul's jealousy skews his thinking here, and he's only focused on the numbers. So Saul really is at fault here. But it's not only jealousy, which you see throughout all these stories with Saul and David. It's something else. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Saul knew that he had been rejected. And in 1528, Samuel tells him this, which must have just struck him to the core. So the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. How'd you like to hear that? Okay, Pretty clear from all of 1 Samuel that Saul correctly assumes that David is this neighbor who's been given the kingdom and who is better than he is. 
So God had left Saul and was clearly with David, and he brought the fear of David on him. We see the same thing in verse 15. And when Saul saw that he, David, had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Again, after Michael's became David's wife, verse 29 reveals Saul's response. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul was deeply afraid of David. He saw him as a threat. This was an irrational thing to do when you read the stories because David did everything in his power to assure Saul that he was loyal. You know what he did in the cave. He cut off the piece. There were several times when he could have killed Saul, and he didn't. He did everything he could to say, I am loyal. I'm your servant. Saul was irrational. So a second sign of God's disfavor on Saul is a huge reason why Saul was so angry. Why was he so angry? Why was he so jealous? That is, God's presence with Saul was replaced by an evil spirit. That's why. Okay? Few things communicate God's disfavor more powerfully than him abandoning you after you've had close communion with him. Okay? When somebody is really close to you and all of a sudden they leave you completely, okay, that's disfavor. There's something major league wrong there. Okay? So the absence of God's Spirit is a huge indicator of God's disfavor. He loves Saul. He forsook Saul. Okay? And as it relates to the evil spirit, we saw from chapter 16 that a harmful or literally an evil spirit from the Lord was tormenting him, Saul. Okay? I would say that having a spirit of evilness or an evil spirit sent from God is another pretty clear sign of his disfavor. We get an important insight into the spirit's impact on Saul in verse 10. The author says, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. When you read through the book of 1 Samuel, you see in Saul erratic behavior, strange behavior, inconsistent behavior. One moment he says this, the next moment he says this, and here's the reason. This was the effect of the evil spirit that God had put upon him. The reason Saul was at times so irrational was because this evil spirit caused him to be filled with murderous anger and jealousy. And closely related to this expression of God's disfavor is Saul's treachery against David. And there are many examples of his treachery against David too. We saw just one of them. Trying to pin David to a wall was probably not a playful gesture. Okay? Another example of this treachery and deceit toward David is in verse 13. The scholars tell us that as he saw remove David from his presence, he did that in the hopes that the Philistines would kill him in battle. Later on, that's stated explicitly. Here it's implied. Sadly, David later does the same thing, doesn't he, to Uriah the Hittite. The difference is David was better at it than Saul. Okay? David was proficient in evil when he was there. There's also Saul's crooked dealings with David related to his promise to make him a son-in-law when he killed Goliath. It's easy to remember, or I should say it's easy to forget in chapter 17, Saul promised his daughter in marriage to anybody who would kill the giant. No strings attached. There was no bargain, no deal, no condition. You kill Goliath, you get my daughter. 
And since the oldest daughter was married off first in this culture, that would have meant that when David killed Goliath, he should have been given Merab as his wife without conditions. But in the case of Merab, Saul goes back on his promise, doesn't give it. And in the case of his daughter Michael, Saul demands a bride price from David. Again, this is treacherous. This isn't what the deal was. Saul used both of his daughters in evil ways to bring David down. Isn't that a nice guy? Uses his daughters to bring down his rival. This, is, this person is slimy, okay? After he offered David Merab as his wife, he attaches this condition in verse 17. Only, that is, I'll give you Merab, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Again, Saul offers Merab on the condition that he will continue to wage high-risk warfare against the Philistines. That's not what he said. Likewise, Saul uses his daughter Michael for the same purpose. Okay, verse 25. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Again, Saul dishonestly adds a condition that David would avenge him of his Philippine enemies in the hope that David would be killed. As you read the rest of Saul's interactions with David, Saul repeatedly tries to kill David because he's so angry and jealous of him. So I hope we see the point that basically this chapter communicates God relating to David in great favor and powerfully, and God powerfully relating to Saul in great disfavor. But what on earth does that mean to us? (laughs) I mean, interesting, but what if God removes his favor from Saul and gives it instead to David? What are we supposed to get out of that? Probably many things, but let's talk very briefly as we close three ways to apply the truths of this chapter from David's life. First, when God places his favor on someone, repeatedly attacking them will ultimately result in their disaster. Okay? We see this repeatedly with Saul and David. The harder Saul tries to destroy David, the more God blesses him through those attempts as those strategies again and again and again backfire. Instead of killing David by the hand of the Philistines through his treachery with his daughters, Saul is instead forced to bring David into his family, okay? His attempt to kill David through his earlier military service instead brings the love and favor of God's people on David. Instead of David dying on a suicide combat mission, his reputation as a warrior is only increased. And as he and his men take not 100, but 200 Philistines, God's as if to say, yeah, I'll give you twice what you asked, okay? All of this is putting it in Saul's face, okay? That's what's happening here. God is with David. His favor rests on him. And if you're going against somebody on whom his favor rests, you're the one who's going to get knocked down, not him. Now, that should encourage any follower of Jesus because believers have received far more favor than David could possibly have known. Do you realize this? We've been talking about favor and things, but that's a pretty good thing. Okay, the believer in Jesus Christ has received much, much more favor than David ever could have imagined. And that favor comes because God said his only son so that we might not be temporary son-in-laws of a crooked human king, but we would be eternal sons of the king of kings. Grace is God's unmerited favor. So when you see grace, you ought to hear 
favor, the favor of God. And every believer is saved by grace, serves God by grace, is kept by grace, and one day will be glorified in his presence by grace. All by grace. All of our salvation from beginning to end is God's unmerited favor. But it's fair to ask, in light of the story, well, if we're favored more than David, why doesn't God destroy our enemies? Okay? I don't see that happening. Well, one answer is God's favor, we must remember, is always given ultimately to glorify him, not the one who receives the favor. That's really important, okay? God was glorified in David's life by giving him his favor to prosper him and to make him king no matter how much opposition he faced from King Saul, who we know was working for the enemy. God's favor is ultimately for God's glory and not ours. But God has not called us to be the king of Israel. Praise God for that. That's how David's favor glorified God. That's not how our favor is going to glorify God. Because the New Testament teaches us that we as believers glorify God as we live as his adopted children who love him so much that by faith we daily pick up our crosses and walk before him as living sacrifices willing to die for him. That's a different assignment than David had, isn't it? Okay? But as it relates to our enemies, the result of God's favor on us ultimately will be the same as it was for David. The difference is we have to wait longer to see it. In David's case, he immediately saw God's favor on those who opposed him. He married the king's daughter. He killed a ton of Philistines. And he quickly became immensely popular with all the people. In our case, when our enemies, human and demonic, attack us, ultimately, that will bring disaster on them if they don't repent. We see this in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Why? Because we have the favor of God resting on us. You don't mess with people who have the favor of God, because God will repay, ultimately. Now, we're called to love our enemies, obviously, but we must also know that for those who do not repent, God will cause them to pay a much higher price for their evil towards God-favored saints than anything Saul could ever pay in his life. We should pray for those who attack us, because although we are never to keep score God is keeping score, and he will repay them with infinitely more pain than they could inflict on us in a thousand lifetimes. We need to begin to see lost people with the same kind of attitude that we see Saul. They're deeply deceived, and they're spiritually insane. They're warring against God. If that's not insanity, I don't know what is. They're spiritually insane. And like Saul, they too are under the influence of dark spirits and living in ways that are piling up more and more wrath from God on them. As the New Testament believers, we receive far more favor than David, and that is not good news ultimately for those who hate us. We need to be aware of that, especially as persecution more and more increases. They're not getting away with anything when they're beating up on somebody on whose favor God rests on. A second truth we can draw from this story is we should remember to pray for God's favor for ourselves and others. This is very simple, but we forget. I don't hardly hear anybody pray for God's favor on somebody, and we ought to learn from this story that's a good thing, okay? 
Now, though we're in a constant state of God's favor, we can pray for God's special favor, especially when we or a brother or sister is going on a job interview or, frankly, has a performance review at work or is just in a position where they need influence for some reason. They're, they're maybe going in an election or a promotion is on their way. We need to pray that God's favor would rest on them. And as this story reminds us, when God's favor rests on a person, it doesn't really matter what the other circumstances are, or who's against you. Finally, we need to remember that David points us to the greater David, Jesus. As we said before, David, as clearly as anyone in the Old Testament, points to Jesus. Jesus is called the son of David, and it's the royal dynasty of David that Jesus fulfills as the great king and eternal king. No one on earth had more favor with God than Jesus, his sinless son, did, okay? But there was one sense in which King Jesus was much more like Saul than King David, and that's because part of the reign of King Jesus, the part that resembles the warrior King David, that's not going to be revealed fully until his second coming. We need to understand this. The warrior king primarily is going to be revealed at his second coming. Then he will pick up David's mantle as the great warrior king and he will destroy all of his enemies. Then that aspect of the rule of the son of David will be revealed. But when Jesus came the first time, he was also revealed as the suffering servant of Isaiah. And that caused him to experience infinitely more of God's disfavor than Saul. When Jesus was on the cross, like Saul, God abandoned him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it wasn't just that God forsook him. He also poured onto his son his infinite and holy wrath as Jesus took the sins of his people upon himself and received the punishment that you and I deserved. And on the cross, Jesus wasn't just attacked by one evil spirit. It was the entire weight of all the spiritual darkness of the cosmos that blanketed him as he became accursed of God on the cross. If you're here this morning and you haven't received Jesus as your Savior, know that he loved you enough to die a hideous death in the disfavor of God in order to pay for your sin. Know also that should you reject him and his offer of eternal life, your future will hold far more torment than King Saul could have ever experienced. As a just God, he must punish all of sin, and he does that in one of two ways. He either punishes your sin as it is placed on the crucified Jesus, and he receives the punishment that you deserve, or if you do not trust in Christ as your Savior, then he will punish you eternally for your sin. For those of us who are in Christ, we need to think about the cross the way God treated Saul. We need to think about what a glorious thing it was that he would show to this perfect, sinless human being who deserved only his favor. He would give him the most disfavor he's ever shown anybody when he was on the cross for us. That's amazing. As believers, we should live in perpetual gratitude for what he's done for us in Jesus. So today, if you're not a person who knows Jesus, you can choose whether you want to have the eternal favor or the eternal disfavor of God. Come to Christ today and know his undeserved favor 
on your life. May God give all of us the grace to trust in Christ and live in his favor for our joy and for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so grateful for the way that the Word of God teaches us about you. Father, we see a different facet of your glory in every story, in every verse, in every paragraph. Father, I pray that you would cause us to see Jesus in the Word, because your Word says in 2 Corinthians 3 that it's as we focus, as we are enraptured with the glory of Christ that we're changed from glory to glory into his likeness. Father, every time we open the Bible, I pray that the glory of Christ would leap out at us so that as we read it, we're transformed by it. Father, would you do this? And God, if there are anybody, there's anybody here today who doesn't know you, who's on whom your disfavor now currently rests, Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would communicate the fear of God to that person. And Father, for those who by your grace are favored and who love you and know you. Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would enable us to see how glorious that is and that we might live in response, in loving obedience, for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray, amen.